0: You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. You may be seated for the reading of God's Word. Our first reading is in, from the book of Revelation. Revelation. chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, and you can find that on page 1032 in your pew Bible. And as always, we love to say, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one home with you after the service as a gift. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of the Lord.
1: Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. You can find it on page 809 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The gospel of the Lord.
2: Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, once more, I'll say to you, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, today is All Saints Sunday. It's a particular moment in the historic church liturgical calendar. And this is a day where the church around the world and throughout history looks back, and we remember those that have come before us. We remember our roots We remember the faithfulness of those who persevered through hard times in ages past, and we take encouragement and inspiration and comfort that they were faithful in their time, and then we think about our own time. We think about our present, we begin to wonder about our future, and we pray that we might be faithful in our own time. That's the gift of All Saints Sunday. That's what we practice. And so it's traditional on days like today to baptize people on All Saints Sunday, because sainthood listen, is not reserved for a special elite class of Christians, but rather a saint is a synonym for a Christian. A Christian is a saint. A saint is a Christian. And so for those who have been baptized this morning, you have become saints. And the journey that lies ahead of you will be to live into your sainthood, which is just another way of saying to live into your baptism. Now, as we begin, let me me say a prayer here before we go any further. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So one in four millennials would quit their jobs right now if it meant they could be famous. Do you know that? Uh, According to a recent poll, Uh, the same poll found that 33% would prefer to be famous rather than to be a doctor or a lawyer, which are kind of historically the two kind of top career choices. And when high school students, this is last year's poll, when high school students were polled on what they would consider their dream job, becoming a YouTuber or an Instagram influencer was in the top five for both boys and for girls. And if you are tempted to think right now that I'm just picking on millennials and Gen Z, then let's broaden our categories a little bit. When all adults of every age were polled, 50% said they would like to be more famous than they are right now. It would seem that we are a nation that is very interested In fame. And the numbers kind of bear this out, as the number of famous people that our society produces is increasing year over year. You might think that in every society, there are only a certain percentage of people that even can be famous, and you would be wrong. Actually, the percentage is growing. The number, sheer quantity, and percentage of famous people is increasing. And I wonder if this contributes to a feeling, which I think a number of us have, which is do you ever feel like there are so many famous people that you're supposed to know and supposed to keep track of? And you keep finding yourself in conversations with people where they go, they like reference a song or an artist or a movie or a TV show, and you go, like I have to do, or I'm like, I don't know who that person is. And they go, you don't know, right? And then you feel oh so small, right? Like you're way out of the loop for not knowing some like obscure indie artist that only played at Coachella, right? Do you guys not experience this? Yeah. I, okay, come on, yes, thank you. So this is, I, I think this is fascinating because nearly every study on fame and celebrity consistently reports that these things diminish one's quality of life, that fame and celebrity make you less happy. And I read a book last week that was written by a friend of mine, uh, Josh Sundquist. He and I were uh, friends and roommates in college, and he had his own kind of brush with fame. And the book that he wrote is called Semi-Famous, which I think is very funny because that's actually how we have always described him most of our lives. It's like, oh, Josh, he's my semi-famous friend. So he's actually written a book now called Semi-Famous in which he does this analytical study on what celebrity and fame do to a person. And it's funny and insightful. And if you're the kind of person who's tempted towards being famous, I would really recommend you read it. I think you'll, you'll find it helpful. In the book, he quotes from a um, an, another study uh, called Film and Television Stardom in which there's this chapter titled Celebrity Experience and the Phenomenology of Fame. Try saying that five times fast. Uh, And in that chapter, there's this paragraph, and I stumbled upon this earlier this week. It says, developmentally, the celebrity often goes through a process of first loving and then hating fame, addiction, and then acceptance, and then adaptation to the fame experience. Becoming a celebrity alters the person's being in the world. Once fame hits with its growing sense of isolation, mistrust, and lack of personal privacy, the person develops a kind of character splitting between the celebrity self and the authentic self as a survival technique in the hyperkinetic and heady atmosphere associated with the celebrity life. Later in the same page. Yet, while the celebrity experiences many negative side effects of fame, the allure of wealth and access and preferential treatment, public adoration, and, as one celebrity put it, membership in an exclusive club, keeps the famous person stuck in the perpetual need to keep their fame machine churning. Uh, Emily Dickinson wrote a poem called Fame is a Fickle Food, and she, she has this to say, Fame is a fickle food upon a shifting plate, whose table once a guest but not the second time is set, whose crumbs the crows inspect and with ironic caw flap past it to the farmer's corn. Men eat of it and die. That poem got dark real fast. (laughs) I was reading that alone in my office earlier this week and I was like, oh my goodness, this kind of starts out sort of interesting and then ends real cold. Another former child uh, movie star, has has this which i think is even darker she says i've been addicted to almost every substance known to man at one point or another and the most addicting of them all is fame so being a celebrity is both desirable and painful and addicting we want it it hurts when we have it but we can't let go of it and you might be thinking at this point like okay this is all very interesting dan but you know but i'm not famous i'm not a celebrity you know so what does this have to do with me i'm not even likely to become a celebrity well Let's, let's think about this a little more carefully together. Historically, in an agrarian society, and remember, up until the 1700s, 98% of the world lives agrarian, means they're uh, farmers. Up till that time in history, you would only ever interact with between 100 to 150 people total in your life, meaning by the time you die, you've only ever met 100 to 150 people. That's the normal human existence up until the 1700s in an agrarian society. 100 to 150, that's a manageable number of relationships. Within that 100 to 150, you've got immediate family and relatives, a few close friends, maybe some neighbors, maybe some acquaintances, maybe some enemies thrown in there just to keep things interesting, right? But that's all the people you know. The average person today, if they live in or around a city and they live to the average human life expectancy of 78 years, how many people do you think you meet and encounter? 80,000. So, is that a manageable number? If if you are online and you encounter people on the internet, that 80,000 number climbs into the millions. So, no matter how extroverted you are, the numbers become unmanageable. And at this point, it's just important to note part of the exhaustion of being a celebrity is having more people know you than relationships you can manage. So, the celebrity feeling, that fame feeling, is the feeling of being like there's not enough of you to go around, that the world has more appetite for you than there is of you. It's, as Bilbo Baggins put it uh, in Lord of the Rings, feeling thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread, right? And the idea I want to put before you is that that feeling, that sense of there's not enough of you to go around, that's becoming an everybody thing, not just a celebrity thing. Or we might say it like this, it's the celebrification of everything and everyone, most people experience some of these celebrity dynamics, these fame dynamics. Andy Warhol, a number of years ago, said famously, "Uh, in the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes. And I wonder if we might put a spin on that and say, actually, in the future, everyone will be 15% famous. That's about how it feels. Now, how did we get there? Why, Why does life feel this way? Well, consider this. There exists within every human heart traces of a virus called narcissism. And this, the word narcissism comes from the Greek myth Narcissus, written by Ovid. If you're not familiar with that story, it goes something like this. Narcissus is this handsome young man who spurns the love of a wood nymph named Echo. And as a punishment, he is cursed by Nemesis, the goddess of revenge. And the curse is that he will never be loved by the one he falls in love with. That's the curse. Now, later in the story, Narcissus is thirsty. He finds a pool of water in the forest. He bends down to take a drink. And when he does so, he sees his own reflection. He doesn't realize it's himself, and he falls deeply in love with that image. And he realizes that if he leaves the pool of water, the image is going to disappear, so he can't leave. And the fires of passion burn within him until he melts and becomes a golden flower. So what's the theme of the story? There's self-love there's self-worship, there's egocentrism. These narcissistic qualities already exist inside every human heart, certainly in some people more than others, that's for sure, but all of us are infected with that virus. Some of us have indulged it and fed it, and so it has swollen and grown. Others of us have starved it, mortified it, and so it's diminished and shrunk, but everybody's got it. And along To humans with narcissistic hearts comes the industrial revolution in the 1700s, moving people from the farmland into urban areas where people can work in factories. This puts people in close proximity with each other. And most of the people with whom you're in close proximity to are friends and allies or competitors, mostly competitors. Still got some friends, but mostly competitors. So now you're interacting with lots and lots of people who are not actually for you, who may even be against you. And along then, a few hundred years later, comes the digital revolution. We are in the midst of that right now, right? We're living through a, a, a culture shift equivalent in scale. Some have even said surpassing in scale to the industrial revolution. We're living in the, in the digital revolution age, moving people from the physical world to the digital world of screens, And these two revolutions have transformed the way human beings live and move and exist in the world. And they are uniquely tailored, think about this, to feed the cancer of narcissism. Because in the Industrial Revolution, we are brought into close quarters and competition with each other. We know more people than ever before, but many, if not most of the people we know, are not for us, but perhaps against us. They're at least competitors to us. In the Digital Revolution our encounters with others are exponentially multiplied while, and that word while is important, while our personhood is reduced to an image on the screen. So you have an unmanageable number of relationships, more relationships out there than you can handle, and more people who want things from you than needs you could ever meet, all while interacting with those people via a kind of digitally mediated image. This feeds the narcissistic impulse. This, this means that the basic human questions become questions like, do you love my image? Do you love what you see when you look at me? Don't you like me? Don't you approve of me? This is why so many of us do not only want to be famous, but anxiously feel the need to be famous in order to feel significant. All of a sudden, becoming a real person and being famous got linked, right? Right? Now, that's all just the big setup. Today is All Saints Sunday. We're playing dress-up in robes. We're baptizing with water. We're talking about something hardly anybody talks about anymore, which is the, the, the life of being a saint. What do these two things have to do with each other? That celebrity impulse, the celebrity culture we live in, and then the call from Scripture to live the life of being a saint. Let's explore this together, and we're going to use the two texts that that we read this morning, both Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, and Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to explore what these have to do with each other. We're going to talk about a description of a saint, the reward of a saint, and the downfall of a saint. It's going to go like this. First, the characteristics or description of a saint. If you take out the liturgy you received when you walked in, turn it over to the front cover, you'll find four icons printed there. These were drawn by our own Ben Lansing, who's a, a member of this parish and actually helped start Redeemer back in the day. Ben, thank you very much. Thanks for sharing your artwork with us. You can find more of uh, this kind of art online under the, under the title, Our Church Speaks, Our Church Speaks. Um, and I want to tell you just a little bit about each one of these. Not too much, but just a little. You've got Andrew Kim Taigon, a Korean priest. You've got Manch Masamola a convert to Christianity in South Africa. You've got Kateri Tekakwitha of the Mohawk tribe, and you've got Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridme, two of the three Oxford martyrs during the Reformation in England. Now, one thing that all five of these saints, these great men and women of the church have in common, is not only the fact that they ended up giving their lives for their faith, but also their lives while they were alive, looked an awful lot like the Beatitudes. Not every person's life looks like the Beatitudes, but for these five, it did. The Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. These are the descriptors of those who are blessed in the Beatitudes. If you've been with Redeemer through the fall semester, we've been doing this sermon series called Paradox Manifesto on the Beatitudes of Jesus. You might consider this sermon the capstone of that series. We're looking at the whole Beatitudes taken together, whereas this fall, we've been looking at each one individually. Now, As we've said earlier, some of the Beatitudes are things that you can choose and cultivate. Meekness, an appetite for God, mercy, purity, peacemaking. You can opt into these. They are practices that you can take up. You can grow in them. You can mature in them. But some of the Beatitudes are things that are inflicted upon you from the outside. Poverty of spirit, grief, persecution. Nobody in their right mind chooses these things. They come to you from the outside. And all of these descriptors together are, I think we all know this, they are not characteristics of a successful Richmonder, are they? They are not. But they are characteristics of Jesus. And so they are characteristics of the followers of Jesus, which is to say they are descriptors of a saint. But the Beatitudes, remember, are not prescriptive. Jesus didn't say, do these and you'll become a saint. They're descriptive. If you are a saint, your life is probably going to look something like this. And so for us, the Beatitudes are a connection to our second reading today from Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, we see the consummation of the blessing that Jesus promises to those who bear these Beatitude characteristics in Matthew 5. In other words, in Revelation chapter 7, we see what happens to these kinds of people. Where do their lives end up leading them? Where do they end up going? Revelation chapter seven, verse nine reads, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, nation, and all the peoples of languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Okay, so you've got this image, this vision that the author of Revelation has. And by the way, the Revelation is such a chronically misunderstood book. Most people think of the book of Revelation as like a set of predictors for our future. No, the book of Revelation is like this. If you've ever been to a a fancy kind of white, white tablecloth restaurant, sometimes you'll have a, a waiter or a waitress come out and put a plate of food on the table and then take the top on the tray and whisk it off and the steam goes up and behold, you've got, you know, today's dish before you. That whisking off of the cover is the book of Revelation. It's revealing, it's unveiling what's already true what's really happening in the spiritual realm in our world. The book of Revelation is an unveiling or a revealing. So what's being revealed here? You've got a multitude that nobody can number. This is evoking promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that his offspring would outnumber the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. So there's a promise in the very beginning of the Bible being fulfilled, consummated at the end of the Bible. Every nation, tribe, and language, there's this beautiful, blessed diversity of culture and ethnicity and race. Just as a little brief aside, if you are someone who thinks of um, the, the cultural value of diversity of people of different cultures, ethnicities, and races being together as a part of the same business or organization or family or church... That is not a new value, that is a historic Christian value, and it comes from places like this in Revelation chapter 7. And we don't think of that kind of language as scandalous today. We think of it as, well, of course, isn't that desirable? But we show our cards when we think that, that we are actually living in a moment that is haunted by the church, even if most people are not followers of Jesus anymore. This value was not native to the people in the original audience, the people who would have first read this, but it is native to us now. And that's because of the long, slow work of the church towards diversity throughout history. This last image of white robes and palm branches, this is a victory feast, a celebration for the end of war. In other words, this is not an army that's assembled. These are people assembled to celebrate the end of armies, the end of war. In Verse 13, I love this. I love the humanity of the Bible. The person, the poor, that poor soul that is actually having this vision, uh, asks a very normal human question. You know, if you and I were there in this particular moment and we had this vision, would we stand there and just kind of go, oh, yeah, I know what this is about. Totally understand it. No questions, right? No, we would be there. We'd be going, what is going on? Who are these people? What's happening? And that's exactly what the author says. What's going on? What's happening? Who are these people? And the answer that's given to him is, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Another way to say it would be, these are the ones who have gone through the long time of suffering. They've suffered. They've been beaten up and dragged around by the world, but they've been made clean and whole in Jesus. So what do we have here? In the Beatitudes and in Revelation, we have two compatible interlocking descriptions of the saints. The saints are the knocked around, the put down, the run over, the faithful ones who were strong enough to not fight back, who gave better than they received, who did not compromise their loyalty, and who persevered to the very end, even all the way to the moment of death. That is the description we have here. In Matthew 5, Jesus describes the life of a saint. Here's what it's going to feel like. Here's what it's going to sound like. In the very end, we have the blessing that Christ states or declares consummated. They truly are the blessed ones. Now, if that's a description of a saint, what about the reward? Because in this Revelation text, there's a lot of talk of reward. In verse 15, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. These people have never been outside the presence and protection of God. Oh, but I bet they doubted it along the way. (laughs) And so now they know it for sure. Now that they are in God's presence, they know that he was with them all along. Verse 16, they hunger and thirst no more. The life of a saint is physically and emotionally rough. It's uncomfortable. And in this life, the saint knows the comfort of God's presence, even in the physical pain, and it gives them endurance to make it to the day when the pain finally goes away. They finally make it, and they're finally at rest. And that rest is then described in verse 17. The lamb will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is evoking the language from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So the reward of a saint is to be in the presence of God himself and in the presence of God to lack for nothing to have every wound healed, every hurt and ache soothed. The reward of a saint is a balm for their soul, and the balm is God himself. A saint is somebody who has given their life to God, and in the end, God gives himself to them. They get God. If God's really what you want, what you long for, If your soul, like the language in the Psalms, if your soul pants for God, like a deer pants for water, then Revelation 7 is the kind of text that should bring tears to your eyes whenever you read it, because this is what you really want. And some of you, I know, are so beat up right now. You limped in here. Maybe physically, but a lot of us limped in emotionally, didn't we? Worn out from the struggle of trying to be a faithful follower of Jesus in a world that only has time and attention and love for celebrities. And the Lord will draw you to himself and there you will be safe and you will be at peace and the struggle will be over and you will finally be able to rest. Is that what you want? I know for some of you that is all you want and you wish you could have it right now. The sad answer for others of us, though, is that while some of our hearts cry out yes for this, many more of our hearts are just not quite ready or willing to wait for our consolation. And so we're not willing to give up on the idea of the best life kind of being now, not later. Which brings us to the downfall. We've talked about the description of the saint, the reward of the saint, and now finally the downfall of a saint. The saint's downfall is to lose heart, to look around and see how much fun and comfort and sex and pleasure and easy everywhere is on offer and to lose heart. Following Jesus is just too hard. The cost is just too high. And so some of you who, I know not everybody here has read the Bible, but those of you who have read the Bible, you you might remember the story of the rich young ruler. This sharp, astute young guy comes to talk to Jesus. He wants to become his apprentice. He wants to become a disciple of Jesus. He wants to be in. And so he asks Jesus, like, what does it take to be in here? And Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness, you shall honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man is pretty sharp, pretty disciplined. He's kind of got his stuff together. He's like, great, I've done all of these things since I was a kid, which would make all of us kind of go, really? Right? But for the sake of the argument, let's just say he's telling the truth. And then he says to Jesus, what else? And Jesus says, go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the story says the man went away sad because he had a lot. Now, what's going on? Jesus looked into the man's heart and saw that he wanted it both ways. Best life now, best life forever, right? Now, to be clear, Jesus doesn't tell everybody to sell everything they have. That's just told to this guy. But Jesus does consistently ask people to give up the thing they want more than him. That's the consistent invitation from Jesus. If you want to be my apprentice, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be in, in my kingdom, it's going to cost you the thing that you love more than me. The man wanted wealth more than God. So that's what he got. He got to keep his wealth. It meant he lost God. Everybody, as C.S. Lewis puts it, everybody gets what they want, but they don't always like it. Jesus is the one who said, if you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. Jesus is also the one who said the first shall be last, the last shall be first. He's also the one who said all of those beatitudes that we've been exploring together over the past two months. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These are the paradoxes of the kingdom. Everyone who prioritizes their best life now, their first now, will lose everything in the long run. And what better way to describe the desire for fame and celebrity that so many of us have than the desire for your best life now, the desire to be first now. This is the saint's downfall, to pursue celebrity over sainthood. And there are many, many people, listen, who are not famous, who are pursuing the celebrity life, right? So I'm not, I'm not just talking about the people who successfully have become celebrities and become famous. I mean, everybody who's trying Everybody who sees that life and feels that, that just that tug or that narcissistic dragon inside of you rears its head for a moment. And, of course, it's true that there are tons of people who become famous celebrities who actually never wanted it in the first place, right? And equally, there are lots of people seeking fame and fortune who are failing to achieve it. So let's just kind of be clear here. We are not bashing celebrities. That's not what, if you go home and you're like, hey, the sermon today was basically a takedown argument against Taylor Swift. No, that's not what this is, right? No, rather, we're talking about the inner dragon of narcissism that hungers to be recognized and loved and adored and celebrated, maybe even worshipped. And so a pertinent question that you might ask coming out of this might simply be, how do you define a successful life? what does it mean to live a successful life? The curse of, Narciss- of Narcissus, the name of that Greek myth, the curse of Narcissus was that he would never be loved by the one that he fell in love with. That is the dead end of celebrity. There will never be enough self-love or others' love to fill the emptiness inside of you. And the more you try to fill your emptiness with fame, the more acutely and painfully you will feel empty. And this, listen, this is the consistent testimony of every single celebrity who's really made it and then later in life has reflected and looked back on what their life was actually like. They reached the treasure at the end of the rainbow and the box was empty. That's the story. Now, if that's where we are, if this, is, if this, is, if this really is the world we live in, if, as people smarter than me have said, we're living in the, in the age of the celebrity, And if this kind of, like, need to be adored really is inside every one of us, but if we actually get what we want, what we're hungering after, then we'll find out that there's emptiness there too, then where do we go? What do we do? You know, the counter to the allure of celebrity is not... (laughs) is not what you. What some of you who know me think I'm probably going to say next. Those of you, if, if we're friends and we've known each other for a while, here's what you think I'm going to say. You think, I'm going to, you think I'm going to say, we need to disappear into obscurity, become a Luddite, delete all of your social media apps, reject the industrial revolution, reject the digital revolution, become a farmer, move to the country, and just go full Wendell Berry on the situation, right? Like, yes. The kind of things that I tend to Google at 2 a.m. in the morning are like, what large tracts of land are for sale? (laughs) Like, where nobody can find me, right? I feel it too. But no, that's not where we're going. No, the counter to the allure of celebrity is love. If you are truly and completely loved in the messy, boring, out-of-shape, unproductive person that you are right now, that I am right now, then you don't need to project a glamorous image of yourself to garner admiration from other people. You don't have to. If you are truly and completely loved, then you're already enough right now. And if you're already enough, then you can be content no matter what the circumstances are. And listen, Jesus is the embodiment of God's true and complete love that has come looking for you. You didn't earn it. You didn't impress God. You didn't fool him with your performance. Jesus sees right through your act, which is so terrifying, isn't it? All of us posture. All of us have the image of ourselves that we present to other people. The self we would like other people to believe is real. And Jesus sees right through the act, which is scary. But rather than shame us, he loves us. And the experience of being truly known and truly loved will absolutely change you. It'll transform you. This is why baptism changes you and transforms you. Baptism is being soaked in the love of Jesus. Baptism is love poured out over you as the water is poured out over you. Baptism is love sealing you with the oil in the shape of the cross on your forehead. And so if you are baptized, then you have encountered the love of Jesus, which means that you no longer have to chase celebrity or fame or adoration from followers because you are already enough. Now, the rest of your life, if you are baptized, will be the long and slow journey of learning how to receive that love and learning how to rest in the love that Christ has given to you. Now, what we're going to do is we're just going to conclude here with of a couple practices of resisting celebrity and pursuing sainthood, okay? Here's the way forward. Some practices that we might implement this week. Practice number one, ask yourself the question, how do I define a successful life? Am I seeking sainthood or am I seeking, as embarrassing as it might be to admit, some weird middle-class version of fame and fortune and best life now, right? My ambitions are low, but they're still making a mess of my life, right? So what am I defining as a successful life? Is it sainthood or is it something else? Question number two, or practice number two, rather. Take an inventory of your life. Why am I doing what I'm doing? What are the motives underneath the motives underneath the motives? Dig down as far as you can. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Who am I trying to impress? Practice number three. Begin doing good things in secret. (laughs) Do something great and tell nobody about it. (laughs) Pray in secret. Serve in secret. Give away money in secret. Read the Bible with a cup of coffee and don't post it on Instagram. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Jesus regularly instructed people not to tell anybody about the things he was doing. Jesus would heal people or feed someone or restore someone, minister to somebody. And usually part of that interaction was him saying, go, but don't tell anybody. Jesus, probably the most famous person who's ever lived, right? But also never sought fame. And so it's important to remember that Jesus is not only our Lord and our Savior, the one who redeems us, the one who loves us, the one who makes us enough, but he's also a model. He's also the rabbi that we follow and we imitate him. Jesus did not seek fame. We don't either. Matthew chapter six, Jesus says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus not only modeled that kind of secret private virtue, but he also instructs it and commands it for his followers. Secrecy, when you practice your faith, is resistance to the narcissistic impulse, which seeks to turn everything into a performance to elicit praise from other people. So if you're somebody like me and you sometimes worry that you might be a narcissist, right? Do you ever worry that? You worry that very privately and secretly, right? It's very scary to say that out loud. But if you're the kind of person who, like me, thinks, oh, no, am I a narcissist? Ah, right? What's the, what do you do with that? What's the antidote? Well, you could go to counseling. Thumbs up. Also, you can begin to practice virtue in secret as a way of habituating yourself out of some of that narcissistic impulse. Some aspects of our faith we practice in public, practices of belonging with others, practices of worship, practices of vocation. Like these are things we do together. Here we are. We're doing something corporately, publicly together right now. But then there are other parts of the Christian life that are best practiced in secret, especially virtue. Now, fourth and finally, pray for those who are famous and don't seek to destroy them. Pray for those who are driven to be successful, to achieve, and don't shame them. Because think about it. Have compassion on those people who feel so unloved that they must try to convince the world to love them. The cruelest thing that you could do as a Christian would be to be unloving towards them. That will only drive them further from the only one who can help them, from Jesus, the only one who will love them completely. So be like Jesus towards them. Love them, pray for them, and perhaps in encountering your love, that person might give themselves to Christ and find rest for their souls. Let's end like this. Smarter people than me have called this time in history the age of the celebrity. And my own spin would be the celebrification of everything and everyone. We must all deal with the fame dynamic and the desire to be famous and adored and admired and praised. We all must deal with that inner dragon of narcissism. And the only antidote to the, that works, the only antidote, the only cure that's actually effective is the love of Jesus. Jesus who came to us, who died for us, who was raised to new life for us, Jesus who baptizes us, who sustains us, and who is bringing us to God at the end of all things. And so through Christ's love, you are saints. You are saints. And so thank God you don't have to be a celebrity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to us in love and in your love, making us to be your saints. Would you please help us to resist the impulse and the need to be adored and admired by others and instead rest secure and content in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.